This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the first Resolution Foundation event of term, the, um, or term in England, as we'll come back to later, as we have represented from Glasgow here uh, today. The, um, now, one of the things, you know, we've had a bit of time out over the summer, you get to think about is so you just like some of the basics to work, like the school's roofs staying up and people are being able to have good work. And actually focusing on some of the basics might just be a good idea right at the moment. So that's what we're going to do uh, today, focus on something that should be basic about what economic policy is trying to achieve, which is what does it take to make sure that more people, particularly those on lower earnings have good work? That is the question mark. The, um, and we're doing this as part of the Economy 2030 uh, um, inquiry, which is the project between uh, the London School of Economics and the Resolution Foundation, generously funded by the Nuffield Foundation over the last two and a half years, which is meandering to its conclusion on the 4th of December. If you haven't got that date in your diary, what kind of sicko are you? So that we'll be publishing the final report then. Please come along to the big conference. But as part of that, what we're trying to do lots is to force ourselves to step back to saying, what's the policy answer to questions that we haven't done a good enough job of answering in the past? And obviously in the good workspace, we have made progress in some areas, the minimum wages we'll come back to later, via national regulation. But are there more things that we should be thinking? Are there new kinds of innovations that will actually make a difference to what have been long-lasting problems? That's the premise of the paper we're publishing uh, today. And you're first of all going to hear from one of the authors of that paper, Hannah Slaughter, who's a senior economist here at the foundation. She can praise the other authors in a second. And then you're going to hear from uh, Melanie Sims, who's, you probably all know, a professor of work and employment at the University of Glasgow, has done lots of work, uh, even in phases when people decided some of this stuff wasn't fashionable. Disgraces. But now it's back in fashion. Uh, Melanie was always in fashion, obviously. And then you're going to hear from Steve Machen, who is the one of the co-leads uh, of the Economy 2030 inquiry who's a professor of economics at the London School of Economics and the director of the Centre of Economic Performance and has done lots of work on labour markets over an embarrassing number of decades so I won't number them. Uh, anyway so that is the plan and as always you guys can ask questions and hopefully we'll do a poll later on Slido and it's hashtag innovation job uh, to do it there. Innovation because we should think about what else we can do not just keep on doing the same policies over and over again. That's the plan. All right, so to kick us off, Hannah is going to give us a presentation of us summarising the findings. Cool, thanks Torsten. And yes, as Torsten alluded to, um, very grateful to my co-authors, Charlie and Gavin. Um, as always, this has been very much a team effort. Um, so I'm just going to take you through some of the headlines of that. Um, so just to first kick off with the problem and what, what is the problem that we're trying to solve. And this will be quite familiar to people who've been following our recent work um, that we basically need to do more to ensure that everyone gets good work. Uh, so this chart is just showing you that 13% of workers are on an insecure contract or have volatile hours in yellow, um, and 9% in purple um, don't have enough hours. And you can see that this is a particular problem that affects the lowest paid workers, um, so particularly the, the lowest uh, quintile of hourly pay, far more than, than the highest earners. So that's probably not 
very surprising to people who come to these sorts of events, but it's a really important problem that, that we need to solve. And obviously part of solving this is through national regulation. And um, we've put out papers earlier this year on, on strengthening that, uh, including um, further increases to the minimum wage. And this is just showing you, um, firstly, the progress that, that we have made so far on increasing the minimum wage. Um, uh, that the dotted red line um, is just showing you where we should be um, by 2024, meeting the uh, target of the minimum wage being two thirds of, of typical hourly pay. And then the orange dotted line is what we've recommended in a paper earlier this year of kind of continuing to increase uh, the minimum wage after the current um, low pay commission mandate. Um, and so that's really important. Enforcing uh, regulation is also really important. Um, but today's paper is focusing on what else we need to do. Um, and we're arguing that national regulation, important though it is, can't do everything alone. And we need to turn to uh, wider labour market institutions to solve things that are maybe harder to regulate for, things like um, appropriate training or you know, better autonomy at work and things like that. Um, and also things that are highly concentrated in particular parts of our labour market. Um, so that is uh, what uh, the paper focuses on. So when lots of people think about labour market institutions, uh, they think about trade unions um, and those uh, remain today a really important uh, form of, of institution for, for lots of workers. Um, but it's also worth saying that the, the union rates have declined quite substantially since the 1980s um, and um, and, and that's been for a range of reasons, and we kind of go into that in the paper. But um, among the, the kind of things like you know changing nature of the economy and, and things like that, arguably policy has also um, played a role, um, and that includes um, policies throughout the last few decades, including in the 1980s when the idea was basically to kind of level the playing field between firms and workers. But as we argue in the paper, that's that's not quite where we've ended up. And this chart is kind of a really striking example of, of what. Um, of one of the problems that, that we're seeing. Um, and so this is looking at the share of workplaces that recognise a union, so rather than kind of individual workers. Um, and the right, the left-hand panel, sorry, is um, showing that the decline in the share of workplaces that are unionised has really been driven by newer workplaces, those, those that are less than 10 years old. And then on the right-hand panel, similarly showing you that it's been driven particularly by uh, workplaces established after 1980. And so um, this, this kind of demonstrates that uh, um, one of the big problems has been newer workplaces uh, not recognising unions, and we go into that in, in a previous uh, paper within the inquiry. Um, but that leads us on to kind of one of our three recommendations to actually get that level playing field that, that everyone said they wanted in, in the 80s, um, and kind of rebalancing the playing field to, to kind of make sure that, that unions are able to do their job properly. Um, so firstly, um, to, to redress that problem of um, of newer workplaces not unionising, we propose giving unions a right to enter workplaces to raise awareness among employees. And that's really important because it means that workers can actually uh, know what a union can offer them and make an informed uh, decision. Secondly, um, we propose bringing uh, union recognition requirements more in line with other aspects of, of our democratic life. So that's when, if a workplace doesn't voluntarily recognise a union, when a union goes through the statutory process to get recognised. Currently, the, the requirement is really stringent. It's that 40% of basically the entire workplace needs to vote yes in that vote, which is quite, you know, requires quite a high turnout as well as um, a high um, kind of rate of people um, saying yes. And we propose changing that so that it's a 
a 40% turnout requirement uh, and then obviously keeping the, the kind of 50% voting in favour within that, but making it kind of more straightforward um, and less, less kind of restrictive. Um, and then thirdly, introducing an online option for those union recognition ballots. Again, just kind of bringing it in line with um, what is basically the norm in every other kind of, or most other forms of, of, um, of balloting and making sure that that's accessible to everyone um, um, as much as possible. So that's really important, strengthening um, the, um, the ability of, of, of trade unions to do their job by, by levelling the playing field. But we also need to go further to solve some sector-specific problems. And this chart demonstrates why it's showing you, uh, so each bubble is a sector, um, and it's showing you on the horizontal axis, trade union membership um, in uh, around 1990, and then on the vertical axis, um, trade union membership today. And you can see in that, in that bottom, um, left-hand corner, there are some sectors where unions are just really scarce today and have always been scarce um, and, and we don't have good data going back further than that but kind of from what we can tell kind of looking at broader sectors that that picture remained um, in the 80s as well um, and so for whatever reason you know be it the structure of these sectors or just kind of um, long-term um, kind of uh, things about the sector that we can't necessarily expect unions to be in a good position to to resolve all the problems in that sector. You know, we, the measures that we propose on unions can help with that, but we should also go further. And so we are arguing that the UK should experiment with new labour market institutions at a sectoral level. And I'll go into more detail in a moment on that. But we in the, when we were kind of thinking through this, we, we also looked a lot at what other countries are doing and particularly economies that are similar to ours. And um, this kind of just gives a few examples of, of what different countries are doing to, to essentially create a framework to bring together workers and employers to, to solve problems in particular sectors. So there's New Zealand there who have recently uh, kind of kickstarted a, a program of, of, of fair pay agreements which bring together unions and employer groups to agree um, standards in particular sectors. In the bottom right hand corner you've got Ireland which has had a, a similar um, a similar um, system for a while now, although they gave it a, a bit of a revamp about 10 years ago. So, so um, there's lots in the paper about Ireland as well. And then finally, that um, the one at the top shows um, uh, one of the US states, um, Minnesota, uh, who has recently introduced a um, care home um, kind of board to agree sectoral standards. So. We're proposing that the UK could have something in this vein, um, uh, kind of learning from what's going on in other countries, although obviously thinking about what's, what the UK specifically needs. Um, and we're calling that good work agreements. Uh, so what does that actually mean? What are they? Uh, basically, they are a forum to bring together worker representatives and employer representatives to solve problems that exist in particular sectors that aren't amenable to national regulation. Um, and this would be very much led by the sector, led by the worker and employer sides, although we're also proposing that there's kind of an independent chair as well, just to, to make sure that there's a, um, a mechanism for resolving kind of disagreements between what should actually be agreed. Um, which sectors would they be in? So we are leaving it quite open and, and saying, you know, if a sector, employer groups, worker groups can make a case um, for problems that need to be solved through this system, they should be able to propose them. But we are also really keen to, to make the case that 
if we're thinking about what sector comes first, social care is a really prime candidate for that. that that's because there's some sector-specific problems that, um, that exist and that we've talked about in other work, including um, care workers who travel between different clients not getting paid for their travel time, which often pushes them below the minimum wage, um, high intensity because of staff shortages, um, and also a lack of appropriate training that, that is very kind of specific to the sector. And then kind of we're proposing that once that's been kind of put in motion after about two years and learning from the experience of doing that, we should also uh, extend to the cleaning sector and the warehousing sector as well. Um, and again, there, there are kind of very highly sector specific problems that I won't kind of go into in the interest of time, but we kind of talk in the report about what those are. Um, and so the, the, the other kind of big question is, is kind of what problems would these things address? And again, we're leaving it fairly open for, for the, these um, agreements to be adaptable to, to what, uh, what problems are actually in the sector. But broadly speaking, we're thinking about it in four buckets. Uh, so first, firstly, training and progression. Secondly, health and safety, um, things that are kind of very specific to the sector and so aren't going to be kind of uh, part of the national framework of, of regulation. Uh, there might be a case for including pay if there's kind of a, a particular reason. I mean, it's worth saying that we're obviously proposing further increases to the minimum wage, which we think will be sufficient in most sectors. But in some examples, so like when, as I said, care workers aren't getting paid for their travel time and that's being pushed, that's pushing them below the minimum wage, there might be a case for, for kind of agreeing a higher rate of pay to make sure that that's kind of taken into account. Um, and then fourthly, wider terms and conditions, which um, it might be things like contractual, um, things like shift patterns um, and whatnot, um, or it might be things like the infrastructure that needs to be provided or the equipment that people need to get to, to be able to do their jobs properly. So that's kind of broadly speaking um, what sort of things might be covered, but they would be kind of agreed on a case by case basis. And then kind of the, the two sides would, would uh, negotiate over what they thought the right, um, the right, uh, levels of these things um, would be. And then finally, just to kind of run through a few more kind of specific things about how these things would work in practice, we're proposing that they would be kind of overseen, um, the framework would be set by the government and they would also sign it off at the end to make sure that the sector would actually solve the problem that it set out uh, to, to, to resolve. And also because in cases like social care, there are obviously fiscal implications so that that's kind of relevant for the government too. But it would also be, you know, very much kind of in practice led by the sector to make sure that they're, because they're the ones who actually know what the big problems are. We're also suggesting that they are um, enforced in the same way as other labour market rights, because as our previous work has shown, uh, any kind of standards that you set are not kind of worth very much if you don't actually enforce them properly. We obviously recognise that that's going to be a bit of a challenge for the enforcement system. We've kind of made proposals elsewhere on how to strengthen that. Uh, thirdly, these uh, we think these should be regularly assessed and, and monitored for the impact that they're having in terms of kind of improving working conditions, but also for any potential trade-offs. So this is kind of similar to what the Low Pay Commission does for the minimum wage, monitoring the the labour market to make sure you know to see what um, what impact it's having on the wider labour market and and make sure that there's not kind of big employment effects. Um, and finally, um, we think these should be renewed roughly every three to five years, basically to make sure that they're still relevant and make sure they're still solving the issues that are the most relevant in, in the sector. Um, and then they, they could be kind of um, updated as appropriate. Um, so there's lots more in the paper. I won't kind of go into all the nitty gritty details now, but just to conclude, um, we really think that implementing these proposals 
alongside strengthening national regulation and alongside properly enforcing that would help to make good work a reality which is a goal for the economy 2030 inquiry and it's a goal you know i'm sure that that most people here will, will agree that's a really important goal for the country as a whole um and then particularly with the the good work agreements um they'd be able to tackle some of our entrenched labor market challenges that kind of we haven't been able to to tackle through the, the kind of more national uh, systems but also preserving the strengths that we do have in in the uk labor market and the flexibility um that the benefits that, that flexibility has delivered and starting with social care would mean pay rises and better working conditions for the 1.7 million care workers that uh, we rely on and that have been getting a, a raw deal so far. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much, Hannah. So Hannah cantered through that very impressively, uh, briefly in 12 minutes. The, um, it's worth saying, I think lots of people who look at the UK labour market, basically we always think the status quo broadly can't change much, right? We find that very hard to think about how things could be done differently, for good reasons, because because change can be hard. And one of the things we're trying to do in this paper is to say, look, there are kind of concrete, real changes that could be made, slightly different ways of doing things, that don't blow up the bits of your labour market that do function well. Right? This doesn't make a big difference to hiring and firing rules or anything like that, if that's what you care about for the UK labour market. The, um, and reminding people the things people said were impossible in the past, like a minimum wage in the 90s, or like a much higher minimum wage, just before George Orwell introduced it. When we proposed here, before I started, a much higher minimum wage, lots of people said that can never happen. And then 18 months later, George Osborne announced it, literally exactly the same policy. And today we have not only that, but actually a higher minimum wage than was proposed then. So like big changes can happen that people think are impossible because having a little bit of imagination is difficult in labour markets where you have lots of intersecting things. And what we're trying to do here is set out how in other countries they have they have done that and it has made a difference. And what can the UK learn from that? That's broadly the plan. Manly, what do you reckon? I think it's the right place to start. I think it's the right set of questions to, to start with. Um, as you sort of hinted at earlier, I've been arguing some of these things for a very long time now. Um, and I've been, um, until about 2018, working mainly at EU level. And one of the things I think that you, you can really see um, is how normal this is in other countries. And when I say normal, I don't just mean in around the EU. You know, in Scotland, for example, uh, I've done some work looking at Singapore, um, which is not, you know, we're not talking about some um, socialist utopia. You know, these are fairly normal uh, mechanisms for regulation in many, many countries with many different approaches uh, to their economies and, and to the way they, they do business. Um, so I think it's the right place. It's the right set of questions to ask. I also think the sector level is absolutely the right level to look at. We've got a lot of what works data, particularly around training and skills, all of which um, speaks internationally to the level of the sector. You rightly in the report highlight some issues about how you define sector, but it's not. That's not an irresolvable um, problem. So I think the the sector is definitely the right level to look at. Um, thinking about the, some of the issues that we've been working on in recent projects and, and, and research that I've been doing, there are two issues that really stand out and I think they, they do demand some reflection. The first is we've just finished a project with ACAS um, looking at collective uh, conflict at work. And one of the key themes that really comes out of that is how inexperienced everyone 
is <laughs> dealing with collective conflict at the moment. So not just managers, um, and CIPD is doing a lot of work to try and upskill HR, the HR profession around collective uh, conflict yeah, resolution. Collective conflict is. <laughs> so, it's not a war. No, indeed. But uh, so the so the, the strike would a strike would be a very obvious uh, manifestation. But um, it can be at the level of the uh, company and and could be um, you know a, a go slow or a, some sort of uh, disruption to work. Um, not always through a union, um, but usually through a, through a union. And and we've kind of lost a lot of the skills um, to effectively try and resolve collective conflict at, at work. Um, as I say, both from the uh, from managers' side um, and, as I say, the CIPD, Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, are doing a lot of work around that. Um, but also on, on the union side, many unions haven't been involved in these big set-piece disputes for a very long time. Um, and so ACAS is having to do really quite a lot of work to try and educate everyone in, in this process, including politicians who are often, as you rightly say, have uh, there are financial consequences of, of some of the um, resolutions. So I think that piece around education is really important. It's not unresolvable. ACAS has a very well-established um, training and education arm, uh, which does fantastic uh, work. Um, and, and can be strengthened. I think more fundamentally, when we look at Scotland, so I've been involved um, in Scotland, uh, some of these conversations at Scottish level for really quite a long time now. Um, one of the big challenges is around coordinating employers. So workers have coordinated mechanisms through their trade unions. There are mechanisms that they're obviously under-resourced and you know, they take a long time sometimes, but there are mechanisms for the interests of workers to be articulated collectively um, and expressed through negotiation or whatever structures there are. That will work very well in this kind of sectoral um, uh, setting. Employers, however, I think we see particularly around skills policies, for example, that actually the fact that employers are completely uncoordinated in lots of sectors is a real problem. So we have really effective employers representation, um, sorry, employ employee representation in various um, sectors, but we don't have the equivalent on the employer's side. And so when we have an employer representing the interests of whichever sector it is, say the social care sector, there are actually not very many mechanisms to, to, to speak legitimately for that group of collective employers. And that then creates a problem when you reach an agreement, so which might well be uh, enforceable in law through, your, through the recommendations that you, you make. Um, but then actually getting that message out there is really, really hard. And so we see, for example, in apprenticeship policies, a really patchy buy-in in pretty much all sectors um, because that coordination mechanism isn't there. So, Again, I don't think this is the end of the world. I don't, certainly don't think it, it blows up <laughs> your proposals um, because there are mechanisms that exist. So we have, um, we have employers' uh, organisations. They don't represent employers in collective bargaining anymore very often, um, but they exist to promote the social care sector or whatever. We have the CBI. We know the CBI is thinking very hard about what its role is and how to do that. We have in Scotland things called industry leadership groups, which are bipartite or tripartite bodies um, that try and think about the challenges of the sector. You know, they don't have any formal status, <laughs> but they could, um, and they're relatively easy to, to reproduce in, in other settings. So I think that is something we need to, to, to think about. In, in Scotland, there is a real challenge about getting fair work applied, principles applied, 
Um, one of the other mechanisms we see in Wales and in Scotland as well is through public sector contracting and, and requirement to, to say how you're promoting good work or you're fulfilling various principles of, of good work. And I think there's a lot of mileage in that. So I'm delighted that we're <laughs> delighted that we're talking about these things. Um, I think it it's so necessary. We cannot just rely on the law. The law is a very blunt mechanism, um, and we need the kind of buy-in of, of employers. Employers are ultimately the ones that deliver good work um, into these processes. That takes a policy initiative from the state. There, uh, there's really very uh, very few other ways of of doing that. Employers, uh, unions can conjole and. Try, try and get people to the, the table, but really it's the state that needs to lead a lot of that discussion. And incentivise and disincentivise particular good, you know, mechanisms for deciding what good looks like in your, in your sector. Um, most of the challenges I think we can see can be dressed, addressed in, incrementally, as you rightly point out. Um, and I think just, just talking, talk, creating mechanisms where we can collectively decide what good work looks like is the first big step to then getting employers on the right page and, and really pushing them to do that. So I'll leave it there. All right, good. Thank you very much indeed, Melanie. Steve, last word to you. Okay, great. Thanks. <clears throat> I thought I'd talk about three things. Um, as a general observation, of course, this is very welcome and, and in some senses is overdue, but people have been writing about these things for some time and it really does need to get out there uh, in, in a kind of bigger way so that people really do listen and see what's going on, I think. Um, so the three things, the first of the three things I want to talk about, which is sort of slightly different slant on, on big changes, is to just emphasise the shifts in relative bargaining power. Uh, between uh, between firms and workers uh, that have taken place over the last 40 years or so. Um, you know, we've seen huge shifts. You know, about f if, if you go back 40 years, uh, most people's wages were set by collective bargaining of some sort. Uh, now, uh, most people's pay are set unilaterally by management. Um, and the change, the scale has been massive. The, the scale of change in terms of if you think about social science research, the extent of union decline and the shift in relative bargaining power over a period of uh, four decades has been absolutely huge. Um, and what, what, what it led to? Well, it's led to uh, a real wage stagnation uh, that we've seen over the last now, we, we keep on adding the years onto this now, 15 years, a huge long period of real wage stagnation and rising profit margins for firms um, at, at the same time. Uh, you know, and I, I think, there's a clear recognition that this really probably has gone too far. It's been pretty bad for the economy. Uh, um, and so perhaps some kind of reversal along some of the lines in here is, is, is very important. I mean, I guess uh, as, uh, in terms of um, one, one marker um, from academic research is that even mainstream economists uh, now write about monopsony power, um, which is the idea that uh, firms have power over workers to be able to pay them lower wages. Even macroeconomists, uh, 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 who are notorious uh, in not writing much about distribution inequality, actually write about monopsony power these days. So I think that's a kind of, kind of signal that perhaps we've, um, uh, things have gone too far uh, and this is not being good for the economy. Um, now, one of, one of the driving factors, if we think about the trade union side of things, is that unions just can't get a foot in the door in new workplaces. Uh, lots of empirical workers demonstrated that the, the, the fall in 
uh, union density, aggregate unionization, uh, has been driven by a failure to organize in, in new establishments. And various things uh, kicked in to help that, uh, particularly the anti-union legislation uh, of, the, of the 1980s, uh, after following on from the miners' strike and various things, especially the Employment Act of 1990, which included a lot of radical things, which were big things that you would think would never could never be introduced, which changed things a lot uh, and really changed the landscape for in which in which trade unions were were able to operate. Um, now, even even there, I, I think it's 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 sort of interesting that throughout this period when we see this massive union decline one persistent theme that's operated throughout uh, is that there's been what, what people refer to as a frustrated demand for uh, union membership so when people are asked in surveys if uh, if there was a union in their workplace would they join it large numbers of people say yes they would join it the problem is there isn't a union in the workplace and so that's the critical sort of thing thing there so the various of the uh, various of the uh, recommendations in this report are most welcome i actually think we could be even stronger on that and actually think about reversing some of the uh, forms of legislation that were particularly uh, geared up to uh, en enable employers to easily, much more easily oppose uh, new recognition of unions uh, in, 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 in workplaces that didn't have them before, which is mainly the new ones coming along. Unions have never killed, killed firms. Uh, by, by having bad economic effects on them. The, failure, the reason why union decline has gone down massively is just is, is a kind of entry-exit thing, and they've just not been able to organise in the new sorts of establishments that have been set up. Um, so that's the first observation. And um, the second one about pay and work and decent and fair work, which has been a big theme throughout uh, the Economy 2030 inquiry, uh, very much marked in, in this work, but also marked in other parts of the, parts of the, parts of the, parts of the inquiry. Uh, but to emphasise the need for uh, investment, for example, uh, in skills uh, to be a kind of key, fe key feature as well. Um, so I guess the, the, it's sort of interesting that on the, on the decent and fair work uh, kind of question, um, that, you know, we've seen, uh, the, as I said a moment ago, uh, uh, like 15, until the last couple of years, uh, 15 years of very, very weak nominal um, wage growth, uh, which went along with um, almost, almost the same rate of uh, changes in prices, so that real wages have stagnated over those 15 periods. We've now moved to a period where nominal pay has gone up a bit more, quite a bit more, uh, but that's been matched by even higher price inflation, so that real wages are still falling um, and still stagnating. Uh, there's a few groups who are doing okay. Um, uh, in terms of, if you, look, if you look at the more recent numbers over the last couple of years, who's, who's experienced higher uh, nominal wage growth, uh, there are some sectors which are they're typically characterised by people who've got some form of individual market power. Uh, and so f business services and finance are having higher than average uh, wage growth over the last couple of years. Uh, other workers are doing less good, especially the ones, ironically, who may still have some form of collective bargaining. Uh, they're not doing anywhere near as well. Uh, the, other, the other place where, where, where wages are growing quite well and healthily is when it's legislated uh, through the minimum wage. So minimum wage workers have done pretty well on that, although there may be other ameliorating uh, consequences in terms of their non-wage uh, non characteristics. Of their non-wage characteristics. The other features of their jobs. So again, this report is really good on trying to highlight those other dimensions. That even where the minimum wage has kept people's... Um, 
wages up, perhaps not their earnings because their hours may have dropped as well. Uh, but the other forms of the other the, the, the other attributes of their jobs would seem to be highly highly important to, to focus upon. So that brings me to a third point, uh, which is about the um, the sectoral focus here and the uh, good work agreements uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of proposal. Uh, so again, this seems pretty important for the reasons I've just mentioned a moment ago, but also for other reasons, because there are different things going on in different sectors, uh, which, which reflect um, trade-offs uh, between wages and work conditions um, as well. So the idea about having uh, some good work agreements with some formal status uh, which could be tailored to the needs of workers and employers, both workers and employers in both sectors, uh, has to be a, it has to be a win-win outcome here, really, doesn't it? Because those sectors, many of them, are not doing very well in terms of productivity. So, if a good work agreement can enable uh, workers to be happier and, uh, and 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 more productive in their jobs, and employers to also be making higher profit margins but sharing them with their with their workers, that would seem to be a kind of win-win situation. Uh, that it seems uh, it's, 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 it's kind of the right time for now, I think. And this isn't a backward-looking, let's go and get the wages councils back in again. This is not what this is about at all. Indeed, the, the discussion before I was talking about, about, um, about unions is not let's go back to how unions were in, in the 1980s. Let's, let's recognise the current situation and perhaps even better looking forward about what kind of labour market we would like uh, and what kind of structure of wages and jobs we would like for workers and employers to do better. That seems to be the critical thing here. And so the innovation job is actually quite a nice title to match that kind of, that kind of quest, I think. Very good. Thank you very much, Steve. I think that's quite a good way of putting it in terms of look, what, what, are, what is it that we're going to try that's a bit different to what we've been doing recently, but is about possibly getting to a different place in future. And that is what we haven't been doing since, basically since the minimum wage introduction. That's the last big thing where we've tried something different in the labour market. They, um, it's obviously been a triumph. It doesn't mean everything new you try. Uh, some things are new and very, very bad. Um, but, but it is worth trying something different and learning about how we do that. So uh, we're going to talk about that a bit. So I thought for the discussion, we should, um, we should, we should talk a bit about some people are asking, like, what is good work? So we talk a bit about that. What are the, what are the problems we're trying to highlight? And I think prioritising what problems you want to try and solve in any given policy-making phase is, is a good thing to do, right? Because there's always too many things for you to be able to do anything about. So what is most important to try to start solving? Obviously, here we're saying some sector-specific problems. Then let's talk about trade unions a bit, and then let's talk about good work agreements. Is it possible? Uh, isn't this all just too hard? Um, maybe someone, I'll come on to this in a second, maybe businesses are all suddenly going ESG-tastic, it'll all happen anyway. No, uh, but, anyway, but we'll come to that in a second. Okay, so that is the plan for the discussion. As I said at the beginning, it's innovation job is the hashtag on um, Slido, and we're going to do a poll on there in a second. But let's do. Let's start with I think what's a good like kickoff question, which Peter has asked, which we'll bring it up, which is um, what do we mean by good work? Good for who? And I think at one level there's like a kind of vanilla mother and apple pie thing here, right? But what's the most important? Hopefully, it's going to appear for you in a second, so you can see it. Here we go. The, um, what do we really mean? What are we about? So wasn't Hannah tell us what the inquiry is about and then other people can give us their view on what it should be about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have... The, yeah, there, there's obviously no single definition of what good work means. I mean, as part of the inquiry, we're obviously kind of trying to create quite a holistic economic strategy. And so ideally, 
all of these things, um, good for good for people and um, the workers, um, but also good for the wider economy and productivity um, and and kind of wider society. I mean, I think we we do try and kind of bring out a bit in the report that these things are also all interlinked. Um, so, you know, improve, I mean, the most concrete example perhaps is social care where, you know, you improve conditions in social care, that's obviously good for the workers themselves, but it also improves the quality of care. It means that you can attract more workers into the sector. So there's kind of less um, staff shortages um, in, you know, it's maybe less relevant in, in social care, maybe more in other sectors where, you know, you might think that um, kind of improving people's kind of experience of work makes them more productive obviously things around training will directly help make people more productive so that will have um wider benefits for the economy as well one thing that is not it's not in this paper but it was in the previous paper in this series that i think i'd take away from it is that what is advanced economies the social contract is basically rests on given that the whole deference thing is kind of when well, we maybe not totally but has largely gone right people aren't like Britain deserves to be a state and it has an underpinning social contract because of, like, I don't know, some toffs are running it and that's the way God intended it to be, generally. If that's your view, fine, but that's not a majority position anymore, right? So the position is, if we stay together, we will deliver rising shared prosperity for a broad swathe of the population, and that is the underpinning of the social contract. It's obviously not going very well recently, given Steve's stats, but that's the underpinning. I think the, one of the things that comes out strongly from this good work focus is, okay, but if it is widely shared... How, how many areas are there where we can see where the nature of work for lower mid learners is just like qualitatively different to that for high earners? Sick pay, flexibility, like ability to deal with other problems that blow up in your life, basic respect and dignity. That's the basic, and that's the core argument, which is if you think, and work obviously is the economy, right? For most people, not for everyone, because not everyone will always be working. But for most people, the economy is about the job they do in terms of the dominant feeling of it. And if those are so different as a lived experience, then you haven't got a shared national project. You've got very different experiences. So that's the overall argument. And, and can I just j jump in and, um, and talk about voice at work? And, and I think voice at work is very different from some of the other measures yep. of job quality because it is both um, a mechanism in its, itself, having, having a say over what your work looks like, but also it's the facilitator of all the other aspects of, of good work. Um, and so thinking about it as a, as a dual mechanism of facilitating good work, I think is really useful. And I think that last part of Peter's question about environment or society really emphasizes that. So focusing on, on what in the jargon we're increasingly calling just transitions so that our, the work in our economies actually doesn't destroy the planet so that there is future, not just future work, but future, uh, future employment uh, for, for people and effective economies, um, I think is, is really crucial because this, these, these just you know, any sort of transition to anything approaching net zero is going to be really quite challenging for a lot of our industries. Um, and it's going to bring real demands for different skills, different kinds of jobs. If we don't embed voice in that process, there is a real risk that that will systematically disadvantage uh, generally older workers who are in more polluting industries. But not only older workers. I mean, if we think about um, data, uh, you know, um, data farms, you know, these are hugely um, environmentally damaging um, industries. So really thinking about what those just transitions look like, and I think it's, it becomes very difficult, very challenging for policymakers, because of course, 
by just transitions, we're looking at a global level, and we have to then actually narrow that down to our particular sector or our particular yeah. country um, and work out what that looks like on that level. It's not irresolvable, but the only, in my view, the only way of resolving it is by having effective voice mechanisms that really centre good work and, and how people's jobs can adapt and change over time. Um, and, I, and there are answers to this. There are people giving this an awful lot of thought, including governments, some governments and, and trade union movements and, and, and things. And it's certainly an area we need to focus on a lot. Well, one thing we, we, we were, there's, there's obviously surveys of, of workers, right? One thing that you notice from since the 90s is so there's obviously the, the voice, there's, there's a reduction in voice, definitely. <laughs> the um, IE people thinking they can have a say in what changes happen to their workplace. There's a, the, the thing that always says to me is the big reduction in workers who think they should have a voice, right? So it's like the like no one's had any of it, and so we basically all decided that's just like not what you would ever do. Like you do, they like you see it in folks groups as well when you talk to people about how things could be differently. People are just like that's just completely crazy. You couldn't ever have a say in how your workplace operated. That would be like bonkers. They don't say, they don't say bonkers, but they mean bonkers. Steve. So what do we mean by good work and good for whom? Yes. Uh, and on here it says the person doing work for the employer, the environment or society. Um, well, I think there's a recognition that this, these things are being discussed because we don't have something that reflects that now and things could be better uh, along some dimensions. And you can ask, you can say, I'm good for whom? Well, it's not just the person doing the work, it's also the family they go back to uh, later on after they've done their job uh, and various other things, their children going to school, etc., etc. It's much, much broader than that as well. Um, I guess what we really sort of think is that we'd like to have pay and conditions and the work environment set up to deliver better living standards for people. Um, uh, and I think there's a, a very important observation to make in that, and we don't just mean that now in a snapshot, I think we mean right across people's entire working lives. Um, and so one dimension of that is yes, you know, uh, fair pay, uh, decent pay now, good working conditions. Uh, uh, that, that reflect that. But also a dynamic associated with that is that, that, that people uh, don't get stuck in jobs that don't have those characteristics, so that restricts their future career development as well. And so it's, I think a lifetime perspective is quite an important mm -hmm. dimension to think about um, in, in, in terms of, in terms of um, the whole fair and decent so that mean You're, you're, you're less worried about the, the student doing a yeah. bad summer job and more worried about the person doing it for 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there is, there is a concern that <clears throat> if in some of the minimum wage sectors that some of the characteristics of jobs are not very good, such that that's keeping people stuck on the minimum wage for a longer time period than it might do, perhaps even because it's higher. Um, but that actually really needs to be thought of as well in a dynamic context to think about whether that's an issue. Uh, you know, the lack of training, uh, which the report highlights, is a big deal there. And if employers are cutting back on uh, intangible expenditures like workplace training uh, for, for people, and we know training has gone through the floor. I mean, the percentage of, of people getting trained at work uh, is just really, really, it's just, it's just fallen massively. It's sort of like a linear trend right down uh, over the last 20 years, uh, predating the global financial crisis. Um, and so we need to look at the whole package of things here. And I think this is what the good work agreements have yep. sort of thought about. Uh, in terms of tailoring the need for, uh, for, for workers and employers in, in, in particular sectors, because obviously some dimensions of training are going to be much more important in some places than others. And I think that, that's why the, 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 the need for working out 
better what fair and decent work are in different sectors as well. Great. Right. Let's talk about trade unions a bit. They, um, uh, and again, because that is, as Hannah said at the beginning, like the labour market institution that people who work on labour markets are used to engaging with in Britain, at least since the 80s. They, um, and so the touch a bit on, so I think the flavour of the questions is a bit, is, a, is what you would generally expect, which is a bit of like, is that going to actually happen? Can, can it happen? And a bit of a, some specific areas where specific challenges to unionisation are just very high. So I think we should, as a discussion, I think a good place to get to is, we've talked about here a step change in policies that would specifically aid the unionisation of new new workplaces, right? Because the, what the research is showing is that it's not that, it's not that firms kick out unions once they're there or that firms that are unionised die. It's that since 1990, roughly, new firms don't unionise. That's basically the general, that's the big thing, right? The other stuff does matter. Industrial structures definitely also matter. They, um, but that is what is going on. They, um, but as Hannah showed, unions, even when they were at their heyday, whether you thought that was a good thing or not, still didn't cover large swathes of the economy and specifically didn't cover low wage parts of the economy in the same way. So do you want to take that first? Sure, and I think that's why these um, sectoral level good work agreements are, are such an important idea. We know from other countries that where unions have a voice at the table through something like uh, these good work agreements, um, the, the reasons to join a union and to get your voice heard are just more evident to, to, to workers. And that can really reinforce the idea that, that there is some sort of value and there's some sort of point. You are going to change something or your, your voice is going to have an influence on your union's policy when they're sitting at these kinds of, um, these kinds of tables. So I, I think that's really important that we don't see the union bit and the institutional regulation like good work agreements as, as separate things. They, they can be um, mutually reinforcing. Um, and they very often are, I think, is, is really where we're, where we're at. But I think there's something potentially more interesting here um, about these, these good work agreements, because we know there are sectors that unions have long struggled to organise, typically because they have very particular features of work, often very peripatetic, difficult to um, get out and, and speak to lots of different workers, either because they're working lots of different shifts or the care workers, they're in their cars going between... Uh, between care service users. Um, so that's, that's just a difficult job for unions to do, um, going around farms with very casualised work. You know, th these, these are difficult sectors uh, for unions to organise. Um, they're also very expensive for unions to organise. It, it, it costs a lot of resource to put organisers into these settings. Um, they can organise them, you know, when, when you actually get to the workers, it's how you organise workers is a pretty well-established thing now. Uh, we know what works in, in those kinds of, uh, once, we, once we actually get to them, but it's often the getting to them that, that's, that's hard. With other, where, where, so these, these are sectors which have long had, both in the UK and elsewhere, a logic for alternative forms of um, collective representation. We've had specific set, uh, sector arrangements for the agriculture sector. I, th I think the report talks briefly about them for a long time. Um, and p deliberately part of the reason for that is because they are difficult to organise and because it, it, that doesn't leave you in a position where you say, well, the union is therefore irrelevant. It means you just need a different way of getting that sort of voice, that collective voice and, and regulation. Up, exactly. And, and it almost kind of has to be, if you're talking about an agricultural sector where people are only employed for four months of the year, 
it's very difficult to get a collective sense um, from the bottom up, but we know what the issues are and we know what needs to be, to be regulated and it is legitimate to use the sort of expert power to kind of say that and give voice to that. So I think this is, this is a really good example of where the, the benefits of that um, more top-down really approach can be quite legitimate um, and just realistic for some of these sectors. That's not to say there isn't a delicate balance somewhere along the line um, and I'm saying this is, this is the perfect solution for all of them, but it undoubtedly, and, and what you then see is of course, a logic of those workers joining their union, even if it's only for a short period of time. So it becomes a mutually reinforcing circle if you get it right. Very good. Let's, do you want to just take this question specifically? Mm. Um, I'm not just doing this because it starts with in Scotland. Because uh, I think actually the question applies to yeah. the whole of the UK. But, it, but the question is basically, look, lots of businesses are smaller micro. Yeah. It's really hard slash not get. It's one version of your point. But yeah. is it, what, is, what is your view on both the possibility of unionisation of small businesses plus the desirability? So if we look internationally, what typically happens is there's some sort of extension mechanism. So a mechanism, some countries that's a collective bargaining agreement, some countries that's something like these good work agreements, there are various mechanisms you can do it, is then applied to, it's accepted as the sort of norm in that sector and it's rolled out usually through some sort of legal or quasi-legal mechanism. And I know many people in the room will know this. And in practice, where you've got smaller micro businesses, that is often the only way of doing it effectively. You set a minimum standard or, a, uh, you know, for, for, what, for whatever issue it is, working time, holidays, you know, whatever it is, and then that becomes the norm. I, I don't, there's, there, are very, there are ways of engaging smaller micro employers, but even employers' representative organisations find that very difficult. Uh, they spend an awful lot of time trying to get beyond their usual <laughs> suspects that input into their policies. So in practice, that's almost always the kind of institutional mechanism you need. And these good work agreements go a long way to, to speaking to those challenges. Great, thank you very much. Right, Steve, why don't you take this one, which is um, a slightly less subtle version of the question, which is like, why would any union, why would any employer want a union? The, um, I know all the trade unions watching are now shouting, being like, they would love us, we're so pleasant. It's also added with the risk of being held over a barrel this high. And as we've seen, Jimmy's cost of living have rallied at the same time. Employers so, like, also seem and there is a question about the context right now is obviously unusual. <coughs> as in so, more, trade, more strikes than we've seen in like decades are going on all, all, all in the public sector. So like, why would you want it? So most of the empirical evidence from the academic research found it very difficult to find that... Uh, unions have bad effects on, on em employers. So the risk of being held over babble uh, is high. Um, the, the evidence on unions and productivity was very mixed and very different in different sectors. Uh, the evidence that unions raise wages is, is there, so they do raise wages. But where do they raise wages? They raise wages where firms have higher profits uh, in non-competitive industries. They don't shut firms down. So the idea about being held over babble uh, is not Basically, unions care about very jobs. persuasive at all. Uh, there was a the very famous old um, Freeman and Medoff, if we want to talk about uh, uh, exit versus voice, uh, was that unions provide a collective voice uh, that can actually boost productivity um, in workplaces. And there was some evidence um, for that. Uh, they make you workers less likely to quit. 
uh, which means that um, uh, means that productivity may well be boosted because of keeping more skilled workers in the unionised workplaces. So the idea that unions um, have bad economic consequences, which I think is sort of what this is saying, uh, is uh, is not 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 very persuasive um, at all. Uh, and that's true in you know lots of other countries where you know unionisation rates are high and actually productivity is higher. Scandinavian countries. Uh, for example, and, 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 I, and inequality is lower. Um, and well. can I just jump in and make more explicit what I think? I think one of the mechanisms that you're talking about um, is is often because it makes management better by having someone who holds you to account and who makes renders visible the, the decision making um, and consistent to some extent in 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 the decision making within the organisation within the workplace. That is often the causal mechanism. We have relatively poor skills. Uh, of middle and line managers in the UK, and it has consistently been a factor in our poor productivity. Um, but you know, all the previous times we talked about poor, poor productivity, and the more recent times. So I, th I think that uh, making clear to people who are perhaps less versed in that literature some of the mechanisms that are going on, I think, is often. Yeah, I mean, also taking the historical viewpoints about where unions unions were successful at organising. Uh, they tended to be successful at organising in 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 sectors that had rents where there were profits to be shared uh, and actually had a redistributive effect there as well. And they weren't very successful at all in much more competitive sectors uh, because there may well be a fear that they could actually, if they raise wage costs uh, and nothing else changes, um, shut down firms uh, um, as well. But again, there's no evidence of that because of the selection of where unions were, a were able to organise. Um, I wrote a paper years ago showing that plant closures are, if anything, slightly more likely uh, if, if, if there's not a union present, uh, although probably zero, zero difference, yeah, um, to be fair. Uh, in terms of the cost of living, I, I don't quite understand what the question is about, 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 about the cost of living. Uh, unions used to be quite successful at organising in, in, in higher inflation uh, time periods because there was the hope that they would negotiate, they would be able to negotiate, about, unlike what is going on now uh, when wages are growing slower than prices, um, that they would be able to negotiate um, a higher wage gain, and, and you know, I mean, I mean, actually, in the U.S. and Canada, uh, there's often cost of living clauses put into union contracts, three-year union contracts as well. Uh, so of course, you automatically would get wages going up higher than prices. But of course, that's not true now. Even though some people would like us to believe that wage pressure is so high, it's actually not. Uh, you know, unions are not doing particularly well in getting, getting wage gains for their workers. I mentioned before the sectors that were getting higher wages are almost entirely non-union. Uh, sectors right now. Right, Hannah, what last on view on unions, I'm going to move us on to good work agreements. So um, this is the age, so we've talked about age of firms, but what about the age of the workers? Oh, I was going to go straight, I was going to go to that, I've got it written, I've got Hannah's written down here as well. Well, you go quickly, <laughs> you go, come on then, steal <laughs> Hannah's glory, that's what you want to be seen, <laughs> you want to be seen doing that, it's your life. No, go on, Hannah, sorry. Right, come on, Hannah, what's the answer? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that um, younger workers are not joining unions uh, and it's it's kind of it's always been the case that younger workers are less likely to be union members than older workers but it's kind of like this the most recent cohort of younger workers are less likely than their predecessors to be in a union as well i mean i think it's um obviously very interlinked with what which which sectors people work in um it's i mean as this question kind of alludes to it you know if people are moving between jobs uh, it's perhaps either you think that there's less kind of less gain to be had from joining a union or it's just kind of harder for, for a union to, to kind of 
you know, yeah. let you know that they're there and, and that you might be able to gain from it. Um, so, um, I mean, I think some of the recommendations that we recommended in, in terms of um, helping raise awareness and kind of, you know, making making it easier, for, you know, once a workplace is unionised, then it's kind of easier for, for, you know, new workers joining your company to, to be aware of it. Um, but it's definitely, definitely a challenge. When we've done focus groups in, like, with younger workers, using the broader sense, yeah, not really knowing what it is we're talking about is quite high up the list. It's not like, there's none of the, like, oh, I don't like them because Thatcher, right, which you get from some 70-year-olds. None of that. It's, it's all gone completely. It's just much more, I have no idea what you're talking about. No, but, I mean, I mean, can I just add one, two, two things? Go. I mean, by definition, if you haven't had unions organising in new workplaces, <laughs> you don't know what it is. that the young workers are joining over the last 30 yeah. years, then it's not surprising at all that people don't know very much about about yeah. trade unions and what they can do. That said, the frustrated demand point I made before about the idea when people ask questions in a survey about whether they would join a union if there was one available in the workplace, that doesn't have that much of an age difference to it at all. But young people answer just fairly similarly yeah. to the older people as well. It's just there isn't a union there and they don't know what it is really as, as, as well to do that. And the new jobs and the new okay. sorts of occupations that are there are now, because of what's happened over the last 30, 40 years, are non-union. Yeah. Uh, you know, lots of, lots of the occupations that, that young, the new jobs, the new occupations that young workers do. Are, so this is, one, this is where the compositional change part of union decline does kick in, that the new jobs are non-union. And the old jobs, but mostly, mostly are, are in decline in some sense. You know, there's not many shipbuilding jobs left anymore, um, and, and so on. And, and, and so that is a component, but it's not the key component. It's something that reinforces the failure to organise in new establishments. Had, had the organisation rate stayed constant, presumably the new jobs and the new sectors would be... Yeah, reflecting the same kind of thing. Right, I want to move us on because I'm going to run out of time. For the, um, so on, um, so we think that's a good idea to do. The changes we're talking about here are basically reasonable and actually fit with what people said they were trying to achieve with assessment of the 80s and 90s. They're just like, look, if, if workers want to unionise, then they'll be able to, and if they don't, they won't. It's basically the gist. No closed shop, but also no but level playing field for like democratic decision-making in the workplace. But I think our view is, it's not going, that isn't going to make a massive difference for low-paid workers because you won't see, they're not going to be the sectors where you're going to see large-scale unionisation. You never have. We don't see it in history. We don't see it in other countries. So what else are we going to do? Good work agreements is our answer. So let's have a chat about that. But first, let's do a poll on that. As I said, it's hashtag innovation job. But, the, but basically, where would you start is what the question is asking. Which sectors, we've given our answer, social care, but you don't have to agree. Which sector would you start with is the most acute for trying something different? Yeah. As we're going to come on to later, we're not saying this is all easy. It's definitely not easy. It's, it's big culture change. It's big organisational changes. There are winners and losers. Um, some of those might be consumers because some of those might be in high prices. So there are. We're going to come on to a second. It's not. It's not all easy. Easy. It's not everyone gets better for everything. But the question is, where would you start? Where is the priority biggest? So Hannah, well, you've given us your answer, I suppose. Social care. The um, give, between cleaning and warehousing, then, because they were your second. They were your mm. two. Where, where is your priority? Um, ooh, that's really tough. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, when we were kind of thinking this through on kind of which sectors we were kind of really particularly interested in, you know, obviously, as I said, one of the, the, the biggest considerations were kind of really sector-specific challenges that are more difficult to, to 
challenge through national regulation. I mean, that's obviously true of both cleaning and warehousing, but I think there are some really um, acute sector-specific challenges in cleaning around kind of um, people being expected to do, you know, people people not being paid for all the hours that they work because they're, you know, they're being paid by the job, but they're being expected to do the job in an unreasonably short amount of time, so they have to work, you know, longer and then not get paid for the hours because it's just not a reasonable thing to do. There's some some kind of really, um, you know, qualitative work has, has kind of picked up um, really um, really awful things around kind of uh, cleaners being harassed on the site of the clients, you know, if they're contracted out and, and you know, that not being kind of dealt with properly. Uh, so some really acute things around that, that I think are really important to address. I mean, there's, there's lots of really good qualitative work um, from organisations like Flex that are out there. And this is also, I mean, kind of mentioned briefly what's happening in other countries, but uh, specifically contract cleaning has been one of the sectors picked up in, in Ireland. They've made some kind of really great strides in in dealing with problems there. Anywhere where you don't know clearly who the employer is, you've got a risk. Like where the relationship isn't a long-term one between an organisation and someone they're employing, and so they, and so who whose job is it to not do bad things? Mm. And the cleaning is like high up the list. I've right, gone briefly because I want to get some questions to you. But go first. Which one are you going to do? Very briefly, um, I think social care. Th there's a difference between social care and the other four, which is that it's ultimately funded by st the state. Um, and I think that's a very useful mechanism to focus minds. Um, if I wasn't allowed to choose social care, I would probably pick retail. Um, I think uh, we've got some, uh, there's, there's enough change in the business models in retail that I think there's a moment in retail which offers some opportunities for employers to rethink what their uh, arrangements with staff are. So like the background is, so retail and hospitality jobs are the big ones here yeah. by in terms of volume of people. Yeah. But retail, what's in, is it, retail is the long-term decline as a share of employment. It's not falling yeah. fast in terms of numbers, but it's declining. Hospitality and leisure are the growing. Yeah. Right, Steve, what's your... Social, social care, but government should be funding local authorities properly. Okay, and what's the next one? Because that's boring. Probably retail, because productivity oh. is so bad in retail. I'd also like to make some observations a little bit about warehousing, which is very, yeah. very interesting, I think, because I think the work conditions are a clear issue there. That said, some companies like Amazon have actually, unions have actually got a foot in the door in some Amazon settings as well, which is actually quite interesting. So warehousing is potentially unionizable, I think, in some ways as well. Because it's unusual um, about being a big shed with actual workers yeah, in it. It's and, almost uh, like a factory. And, yeah, I mean, it's like a factory. I mean, these factories down the M1, uh, these big warehouses down there and stuff. I think actually that is, is something that's quite interesting on, on both of them. But cleaning and hospitality also have, have their needs. But oh, retail yeah. productivity is, has, has been traditionally really bad. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and you would think that if there could be some improvement in the interaction between... Okay, let's see what, the, let's see what the punters are all voting for. I fear this is dangerous consensus, which is very <laughs> dull. Oh, okay. That's like literally, that's like North Korean level of voting. Uh, the, um, right, okay, well, look, I think social care is the answer, so we're not going to uh, disagree. And there you go. They're going with Hannah second, that you two have completely failed to convince the punters at all that anyone wants to make any progress on retail. The, um, I, like, all, from a policy-making perspective, rather than for, like, in the weeds of the UK labour market, starting in a sector with large, significant public role, I think it makes sense anyway. You can learn by doing with the government heavily involved. And then I think retail and hospitality is just very large and hospitality is a very broad sector as well with lots of different bits to it, restaurants, hotels. Plus, I think it probably does make sense to focus on some of these where you're more, like cleaning has obviously got a clearly 
has got an occupational definition as well as a sectoral definition that does give you a bit more ability to get at it. Um, great. Okay, right, let's get into some of this. So there's loads of good questions about um, good work agreements. One, one of them, which I think you should take, is basically, look, why can't we just do it all with um, national legislation? So, the, so Tim's got a good, there's a various versions of this, but Tim's got a specific thing with, look, if you want to sort out the travel to work problem on social care underpayment, just nationally legislate for it. You don't need to have a meeting. Just get on with this. Everything should be, this is, and the punters, like, although, it, although it's very popular in policymaking circles to talk about devolution and stuff, right? The punters are basically just like, the central state should just do it. About almost everything. Bin collections, central state should do it. Which is probably not the right answer. But So why don't you want the just central state just to legislate for all of this? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, lots. some of the things in our, in, that we pick up in kind of the problems in, our, in the report are, you know, are sex specific. Some of them are just kind of, or not just, some of them are, you know, things that in theory maybe you could legislate for, but they're kind of really the drivers of the the problem are very unique in the sector or they're kind of very highly concentrated i mean in this specific example of social workers not being paid for their travel time it's it's um kind of um one of one of my colleagues wrote a really good paper on this earlier this year like it, it is i mean it's not even just kind of making it the law it's you know it's they, they should be paying for their travel time but it's just so it's not properly enforced um and you know business models in social care are just you know such that, that you know especially because of the funding constraints that they're facing etc they just kind of then they just it, it's now just the norm that it's or you know broadly speaking the norm that lots of, of companies or providers don't um pay i mean one of option obviously is to just kind of come down really hard on enforcement but you know the the fact that the kind of business model you know the, it, it's really hard to change you know business models really you know getting the enforcement um kind of drive needed to to make this a reality is just so big that actually in many ways it's kind of more efficient just to say you know we could increase the wage and then that kind of achieves the same outcome it also benefits uh workers who are getting paid for their travel time and get a wage rise um uh, and it's kind of almost a, a practical choice i suppose so um yeah i mean there, there are definitely some things in our list of kind of problems that yes you might think national regulation you know or national regulation does have a role but where things are really kind of acutely entrenched in certain sectors and basically business models are just kind of built around that it's it's really hard to change and actually like you you kind of there might be drivers of the problems that are unique to a particular sector even if the kind of outcome isn't necessarily and can i can i also jump in with a, a sort of first principles um argument there's increasing um academic uh labor law argument that actually when we look at some of the judgments that have um come down around we know that a lot of the gig workers um, union case, cases and things there is almost always a sting in the tail there's they they are never quite even where they reinforce workers rights or workers status um, there is almost always some sort of constraint on that or some limitation on that that makes it very difficult to generalize to other groups um, that can often some of the judgments actually say you're allowed to be considered as a worker for these rights but not for those rights I mean so that they're they're really constraining in many ways and increasingly that argument is not just a simplistic argument that judges will generally want to reinforce the rights of capital to make decisions um, but one about 
how the, the law in the UK is structured. Now, I'm not an academic <laughs> lawyer, and I'd have to defer to my colleagues who are. Plus, we've got eight minutes. <laughs> Indeed. So let's not do that. But yeah, but, but that, that actually the, the, the employment relationship, as it's conceived of in UK law, does not generally facilitate judgments in favour of workers. That is warming. The, um, let's do another hard one. In fact, why don't you take this one as well, which is, okay, we can't nationally legislate for everything, not least because there might be different trade-offs for different sectors, or we might be more worried about, we don't want to put like the entire economy through a new load of regulations to address something that's only happening to like a subset of the population, right? Without you know, that's the Tory version of the argument. The, um, now, what about another one, which you goes in phases of being fashionable? So, Manly, you can do this because you'll definitely have had this issue, which is, look, actually what we need is enlightened HR, ESG will solve this for us. Firms are already taking it really seriously. Investors ask about it all the time. There's no need to do it via regulation because basically happy clappy will get us there. I think for some employers, that's certainly true. And I'm very lucky to work with some employers that take this very seriously. If I ask my students about the kinds of jobs that they do, that is not the experience of work across the economy. So I think if we just say we're relying on big organisations that have resources, expertise, um, investors who care about these things, etc., we're actually missing a big chunk of the labour market. And that's where a lot of the serious problems are. I actually thought that was quite perky. I was going to be even ruder about the idea. I think it is really dangerous the way people think that putting ESG on their corporate reports is how you actually change like underlying the underlying economics of what actually happens. People like, you know, who signs up for the living wage? The companies that large numbers who would have already paid the living wage. Not all, but lots who would have paid it. Anyway, it's really easy. You can talk about ESG for years. It can keep you kind of, what used to be, you rebrand your corporate social responsibility team as your ESG team. Like, does it actually change the economics well, and of cleaning? Well, even in those organisations, HR isn't always at that corporate decision. Yeah, exactly. They may even be made. saying the right but, thing. Exactly. Yeah. But go on, Steve, where are you on the ESG oh, turkiness? There's been plenty of these things over time. Yeah, yeah we just uh, rebrand it. Many, many of which have just disappeared and no, companies have never done anything different. But HR consultants did make a lot of money. Oh, yeah, yeah. As yeah, they went yeah, through yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Um, so, don't, if you want inequality down, ESG ain't it. At some point, something's actually got to change about the economic fundamentals without being a Marxist. Right. The, um, uh, let's do downsides. Okay, so someone's got a great question here. Yeah. Does this policy have any negative or unintended consequences? Uh, there will definitely be, there definitely will be things. So, how do we wrestle with that? So, Hannah, how are we thinking about that? And, lo any, any, and lots of changes to the labour market. That you're doing, particularly doing at a national level, will always have like winners and losers, things you didn't want but are prepared to prices you're prepared to pay. So what do you reckon, Hannah? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we we do talk about this a bit in in the report about you know, obviously when you're increasing any kind of labour market standards, there is a risk that employers will basically respond. You know, if, I mean, it's it's obviously a big debate around the minimum wage. If you know, if you raise the minimum wage, will employers basically make up for the extra cost by cutting jobs or cutting hours? Um, and so that's why we think it's it is really important to to kind of uh, have some kind of monitoring um, of that and assessing them as you go along, and, and obviously learning learning as you go. Um, I mean, probably worth saying as well though that we we haven't thus far, Touchwood, uh, seen any kind of big employment effects from the minimum wage, you know, as best we can tell from lots of uh, really um, good academic um, work um, assessing that. Um, so 
you know, hopefully we can kind of be a bit optimistic on that. But I mean, it's, yeah, we definitely do want to kind of make sure that we're not accidentally, you know, raising standards, but putting a load of people out of out of their jobs. I mean, um, the other kind of um, point to make there is that obviously in social care, it's kind of less about uh, possible job losses and more about kind of the fiscal implications, um, of, you know, given that it's ultimately funded by the state. But I think um, there's, there's kind of lots of arguments for kind of better funding of social care of which kind of improving the quality of work is only one so um, you know there it's obviously right that the government is kind of involved in, in the process of kind of agreeing what the higher standards would look like but definitely not a reason to kind of not not go forward with it. She should be properly evaluated because we've emphasised the benefits which is the upsides. Yeah. Uh, of course there's costs potentially but you need to figure out whether the benefits outweigh the costs. Exactly and one way this one way this, um, one way, one thing that's a bit weird about labour market discussions is that we talk about policy interventions and then someone says it could cost a job, right? And it was like, so we can't do it, do it at all, which is a nuts way of thinking about it. Because in every other area of policy, we're like, there's pros, there's cons, we'll weigh them up. It's quite difficult. We need mechanisms for taking those decisions. But if you went back to the minimum wage discussions over the last 25 years, in retrospect, lots of it was mad. Like, absolutely mad. And even then, the whole premise initially was, We'll do this up to the point at which it costs any jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, is it like if you could give a million pound pay rise to like all the low paid workers and cost you one job? Was that was that the balance of no? That isn't. You wouldn't do that. Like you've all been through COVID now, so you know about the difficult trade offs. They go right. Have your question, sir. It's really adding to that point. One of the consequences of increased pay is to improve productivity, but it has consequences. A trade unionist once said to me that all he had achieved by getting higher wages was to make his members redundant. So how do you deal with that? What kind of sector did he work in? The drink industry. Drink production. Drink production. Yeah, so that, I mean, well, that's a very big question. Uh, who wants to take that one first? Because otherwise I'm going to start on a story about productivity I can say growth. What, I can say what the academic evidence yep. says about that hypothesis. Uh, it, it tends to suggest that the productivity effect outweighs the... The cost side. Because explain, explain that to people. So there's very little. Does that? Oh, okay. Let me let me reverse it. If if when people looked at uh, employment differences, employment growth differences in academic research between union and non-union workplaces, there's no evidence of a negative union effect on employment growth, even though they raise wages. So something must be offsetting the higher wage costs, and that presumably is improved productivity. And, the, um, and so you don't need you don't it doesn't need to be a labour demand effect. This is an average. It's an average argument, I would say. There, so. lots of people redundant, and the higher wages is part of the, the justification for that. Yes, but on average, that might may be true in, in the firm that you're talking about. But there may be another firm. About Hold the mic, sir, because I'm worried. There's these oh, yeah. people on the interweb, and okay, they need to sorry. hear your words. The question is, how do you deal with the consequences? Because you will make people redundant. So, what do you do with the redundant people? That's the question. Oh, in that well, sense, okay. It's a complicated argument. Okay. The, um, so, look, I think a simple way of putting this is we'd all like some productivity growth. In some sectors, productivity growth means being able to produce, right, what we're producing now with fewer workers. Um, if you, and if you're talking about beverage production, that is what has happened over the long period, right? Number of workers working in, remember, this is a manufacturing sector. Whenever everyone says they want manufacturing to expand, they basically mean like beverages is what Britain does. We're really good at beverages. The, um, and the reason there's fewer workers is automation, right? The, um, it's not really trade. It's not definitely not trade unions. So all I would say to be a bit careful, this is a, this is a bigger question, which is do you want productivity growth? 
And the answer is in some sectors it will mean fewer workers in the sectors, in others it won't, it will mean more workers in the sectors. But, but in other parts of the inquiry, the Economy 2030 inquiry, we're talking about exactly, exactly that this. issue and about the need for reskilling and the need for people to be able to not just be made redundant and then be, un and be unemployed for however many years and then go on to sickness benefits as well, which we've had happening over the last 30 years or so, uh, big time. Uh, there's a need for retraining and reskilling, especially in those kind of sectors where technological change is occurring. And so there will be job, jobs being jobs being Melody. lost. So I think that's, that, that's yeah. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that, that attention to um, training not necessarily being provided by the employer, um, but by the state um, and access to retraining throughout a career is super important. And we see that many, many, many countries. And we see that often with task forces that, that, that are then available for particular sectors that have specific challenges. Um, the good news is just transitions. I mean, if we're really serious about creating a net zero economy, there are going to be a huge number of jobs that the UK is very, very well placed to, to develop. Um, it needs some rounded thinking, <laughs> which isn't always in evidence at the moment. Okay, right. so lots of words from Stephen and Hannah. There's a skills paper that's going to come out later on in one, it will be one of the last papers that comes out in the, in the Economy 2013 quarter, which will talk about policies like human capital tax credits for employers, so that then they can reskill the workers who get laid off as well. And so I think that's coming in due course, but in a different part of the inquiry from, from this. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing to do is like, this, the reason that question is really good is because it's about trade offs, yeah? yeah. The, um, and so, but you, we'd, we'd be really careful. We're not saying, we don't want productivity growth because it will mean fewer workers doing particular jobs because that, that is the route to no living standards growth right, for the country. But one of the things for the inquiry as a whole we're trying to encourage people to think about is what is the kind of economic change we actually do want? Yeah, because if you just say to people, do you want change? It doesn't sound a bit scary if it involves you. But like, you know, do we want to have as large a percentage of our workforce in low-paying sectors as we have today? Do we? Because the low productivity in those sectors is part of that. So is the lower costs, right? So from consumers, we all benefit from having it being relatively cheap to go to your chicken shop, right, down the road. It's, compared to some other countries, it's cheap, right? Why do like, why'd loads of French villages not have cafes or anything anymore? Because it's relatively expensive to consume out in France compared to the UK. But the effect of that for the economy as, over, as a whole over decades is a larger, lower-paying sectors, a lower-productivity economy. So like, one way we've got to like focus on... We can't just be like, oh, anything will lead to some change. The question is, what is, what is the kind of change you want, and are you prepared to deal with the downsides? Of it. No, I'm afraid I'm going to wrap this up. So, yeah, right. Last word to you, Hannah, which is you've worked on this project for, for quite a few, quite a while, and, now we, and we've been thinking about this issue for years, and this is us forcing ourselves to write down where those conclusions have kind of got us to. The, um, uh, everybody, I think, generally over the last decade has moved into thinking probably we would like to improve the quality of work in Britain. So, wrap us up with your thoughts on whether anything is going to happen. <laughs> um, I think so. I mean, I think. Um the progress that we've made around the minimum wage has that that chart always makes me feel quite optimistic because you know it, it's something like as, as you mentioned earlier like something that at the time everyone was kind of like well some people were really excited about it but some quite a lot of people were very kind of you know skeptical about it would it actually have any overall benefit yeah you get a pay rise to some workers will it have big employment effects um etc etc but where we've actually ended up is you know really a minimum wage that is among the highest in the world like you know big pay rises for for the lowest paid workers and and as far as we can tell no employment effects so i think we've we have done successful change in the past we just kind of need to do more of it 
we do we need to do more of it is a good thing. We need to do more. And if you want, one thing I would say to everyone is, often people when we talk talk to me about these issues, and I'll leave you with this thought, right? They they everyone's like with you on the like the problem's really big, okay? And then you start discussing what you might possibly do about it, and everyone starts getting scared. And they're like, okay, but how about we just like tweak this thing here, or we just there's an excuse to not try anything that's much very different because you know it's difficult and suddenly that we know in jobs in the UK economy is if that's how our labor works and if you don't try something significantly different the quality of work in the large low paying sectors is not going to change you're not going to solve the cleaning problem no one talks about cleaning obviously because look not very men, men do it they um, but like generally we've got to try something different this is a proposal for trying something that goes with the grain of the UK labor market as it is is doable, is practical. Like the minimum wage, you can start in a kind of steady way in some sectors. The minimum wage started at a very low bite, right, for quite a few years while we analysed what its effects were. So it can be done. Then I reckon, I'm going to go for, I think, despite everyone's pessimism about Britain at the moment, there's a 63% chance of something happening along these lines in the next 10 years. The, um, and that is quite a good odds, you know. I buy lottery tickets. That's not as good. So on that happy note, thanks to our panel. Can we all thank them for their time today? Yeah, thank you all for coming. And go out and think, and that last question is a good one. What are the trade-offs you're happy to have to get good work for people in lower paying sectors? And then how are we going to make it happen? Great. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.